You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. So here's what Lacrosse has recently done. They've taken their 100 plus years of experience to create a new line of lace-up hunting boots called the Navigator Series. Now the Navigator Series comes in two options, the Atlas for men and the Windrose for both men and women. Now if you want to find out more about their high-quality awesome boots you need to go to lacrossefootwear.com hey guys welcome to land and legacy podcast this is your host adam keith we're co-owners of a consulting company called go figure land and legacy this is your number one podcast resource for all things land each week we're breaking down topics from land management habitat management conservation farming practices and real estate we hope you guys enjoy it Welcome back, guys, to another Land Lakes podcast. Um, this Adam here. And Matt's here. And uh, so, whoo, we're going to get back on track. Can you believe it? I, I You really c- can't even wrap your head around. It we're already, August 4th. this is going to air August the 6th, I believe, um, which puts it just a, a month and a week yeah. away from opening of Missouri deer season, archery season. It's insane. I, and I, I, it always shoot, jumps up t- and gets. Does Tennessee's you. got that early? Tennessee opens up like the twenty fourth, fifth, and sixth. What? I think for that early, yeah, archery deal, which is like, that's twenty days away. Yeah, I, I here's the thing that always gets me, and I know that there's a lot of people out there, probably probably people who are listening that, like, your mind's always focused on deer season, and I, I don't think ours is focused on deer season. It's more like just preparing for general fall, but. But it's it always sneaks up and it's like oh my gosh it's August and and I'm gonna, I could potentially have a bow in my hand in in a month and it's like I'm not ready for that <laughs> I'm just not it's still like very much summertime feel but now as these pictures and these bucks that we're watching are developing it's like man it is legit getting real for it's sure coming quick yeah we had a couple deer we've had these couple really nice. Uh, deer on camera, but then Chad went and checked another property that we hunt, and one of them that's uh, had many encounters. <laughs> yeah. Um, had a couple of shots at him. Um, well, the past, what, two years? Two years, I think, yeah. Two years ago, I shot him with a muzzleloader, and he was just too far, I think, and uh, Chad shot him 400 last year. 400 yards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I shot him, I think he was like 100. 20, 130 yards, mm-hmm. um, but it was like way last light. 
Um, there's snow on the ground. There was snow on the ground. <laughs> it was legal hours. It was just yeah. really cloudy. Yeah. And uh, and then Chad shot him last year, but he's a deer we had nicknamed Snakes. Good, um, good reason why. Because it was kind of what uh, people call him Cactus Deer. Um, so he's kind of had that cactus antlers. Um, and he was a, I mean, he's a great deer. He's back. He's back. There's another nice deer with him. So there's a lot of excitement, a lot of deer to chase. Well, and truthfully, y'all just pulled for the first time cameras on. There's There's been the lease that the cutting link is basically set up on. But then oh, your guys' like home farm, family farm, it's just, they Chad just recently pulled out this weekend. And lo and behold, there's another deer there that's like, that Holy we believe cow. we had an encounter with last year. Fantastic encounter. And you know, I don't I don't know how old he is, but he's he made a great jump. Unreal. Um, Unreal jump, really. So he's definitely on the hit list. Definitely went, a deer we won't pass he, up. Was he a nine last year or an eight? I, I thought he was just an I think eight. It was a basic spindly horn. Barely wide. any brows. Yes. Bare I mean uh, a decently wide deer, probably seventeen and a half or so. Last year, and it's like, wow, that deer's he's young, he's hes great. He walked in front of you, what was that, late October? One morning, late yeah, October, morning there. Was. 30 yards, strolled on by. We watched, we watched him bed down and took pictures of him bedded down in a thicket, and it's like, huh, cool. And then he pops up this year, like, hello. Now, that's a that's the same deer, but that's a game changer, that yep, jump that he made. For sure. So, this podcast is devoted to. Um, Last-minute techniques and habitat improvements to not only make this season more successful, but future seasons more successful. And this is kind of the mind, the 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 thought process, and the mindset that will help you understand our philosophy. And it's you know it's ironic. Lately, uh, we've had a lot of really nice emails. Did the podcast last week with Steve in North Carolina, and we had a ton of emails and private messages where guys were wanting to sign up to, to have their property right. evaluated. Um, and we'll have another one coming in the future. But uh, a lot of people saying that they, they like that their their mindset and their eyes, the way they look at their property, have changed since listening mm-hmm. to our podcast. So we know we're doing some good. Um, Tr- truthfully, I don't I don't think there's a bigger compliment than that in and of itself because here we are we're talking through land management every single week in a podcast we're not able to get to everyone's property or be with everyone on their own property but through just listening and hopefully absorbing this information it's changing the way people then go to their property and look at it like you couldn't ask for anything more out of a podcast I think than that right there and as long as you guys are out there trying to actively change and observe things and think critically about it, you guys are then going to take that action and really create some awesome habitat across the country. Absolutely. And not only change some habitat right away, but change it for the for long, the long, term. long term good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then hopefully educate others around you to do the same thing. Um, and so... You know, that's that's the thing is some of these techniques you're going to probably think were crazy, but <laughs> one of the best deer on the Prairie Hollow property right now is living around a, pr- a food plot we call Paradise Point. Well, just two days, two days ago, yeah. we went in and did edge feathering. You and Chad, I was working on some other projects. Um, you guys did edge feathering. You did bedding thickets. You created yep. two bedding thickets. And you edge feathered that whole side that he's been coming out on the most. Yep. Uh, completely changed that area. I mean, we ran a chainsaw for probably 
three and a half to four hours in in the area. And, you know, if you go back and you'll probably listen to all sorts of other podcasts and this and that and read articles and pages, uh, like that's a humongous no-no pretty much in a lot of people's opinion. This close to season, don't do any disturbance. Mature buck, he's going to leave completely. That deer's been in there and using that area for years. Yeah. Like, that, that's not a concern at all. And, not, and not the bit. other thing is, like, what what was created was the best habitat in the neighborhood. Period. So or none in that short amount of time. If you if you think about it, here's the mindset, and you'll see some of our videos on uh, social media. A couple cell phone videos we shot while we we're out there. Um, we don't manage for a specific buck. We don't manage for a specific species. We manage for all native species that are in that area for their benefit. So what we're doing is replicating nature's natural cycle or trying to replicate it. Um, You may be wondering how to chainsaw have to do with any of this. But with edge feathering... Hang with us for a little bit. Edge feathering, what we're really trying to replicate is the way... Uh, our landscape, southern Missouri, shaped by fire. Um, that was one of the biggest disturbances that we had that, that shaped it and created the diversity in the mosaic habitat. Um, what we're doing with our edge feathering is we're going in and trying to feather the edge, obviously, with chainsaws the way the fire did pre-settlement. So fire as it swept across the landscape, we're talking vast wildfires, um, they would then go th- rip through an open area, and then if there was a forest, they would they would hit that edge to where you would get this uh, flame heights going from grasses, from grasslands to uh, more of dropping down because the fuel the fuel type changed, and so you had this kind of sporadic changing transition from one habitat type to another, and so the edge was more of a soft step down. Uh, a step-down transition, and that's what we're creating with edge feathering. So there's the habitat benefit uh, as far as the, our multiple re- species. restoration. Yeah. And now, and now there's more. There's going to be more sunlight on the edge, so the food plot is not competing with a thicket of mature trees. So the food plot edges are going to do better, but also um, there's going to be more stump sprouts, so there's more shrubby component, young forest component. So deer standing 50 yards in the timber can't see all the way into the food plot. So it helps from a beneficial side of now there's woody browse available during the winter months. There's woody browse available during the whole growing season. But it also protects. Uh, so if you're hunting the edge of the food plot, you could grunt and try to lure deer out in it because they can't see standing back in the timber 50 yards they can't see what deer are out in the food plot so a huge benefit there but probably the biggest is the fact that now we can steer deer closer to tree stands um to where that what do you think that edge of that food plot is it it ends up being about almost two acre food plot yeah yeah. and it's a big square pretty much square and it's probably 75 80 yards um that that north side and deer could come out anywhere through it but now it's edge feathered to where there's really only 20 yards that they that they could go through on that north side, which they were coming out in in a spot about nah 20 yards from the gap that we that that we opened up, um, but we closed up that area with hinge 
hinging trees, and I would say this is probably our most popular time of using hinge cuts yeah. is in edge feathering. Well, and, and we talked about on Insta Story and this and that if you guys are watching, but this is the this is the fine tooth comb stuff where you can you can get into more let's say detailed work with a chainsaw where yes you're are legit steering deer we're getting these deer to move where they're coming in and out of this food plot 20 yards and sometimes that may be asking a lot but we'll get into the other aspect that kind of helps dictate where they're coming out at in a second but the reason we had to do it is because there wasn't a stand option. There wasn't a, a, a tree that we could go and hang in and access with the right winds and everything where they're certainly coming out at right now. So we had to change something, and we closed off an area. We improved the habitat, and now by design, hopefully we're going to see that entry and exit point of where those deer are coming in and out of the food plot change to an area where we can easily slip in and kill them. And, I, you know, we're... We're not going in with the mindset of that running a chainsaw is going to take the place of prescribed fire and, and you know, we're going to have the exact same disturbances. But by golly, we're going to have a heck of a lot better habitat and and we're going to have a lot, maybe not the exact same species component, but the same general type of feathered transitional edge from food plot to our mature timber. So we're going for the same things, just, just going a different way about it. So... That's all in all, it improves the habitat and improves the hunting. So I don't see why you would never just go ahead and do it. And when you think about all the practices, habitat management practices, this might take the cake for me on the one that could be used to improve the habitat, but also improve the hunting just as much if used correctly. Oh, yeah. And I think this is where you won't hear us recommend edge feathering a lot on these uh, podcasts where we do consultation, like, interviews. Um, now, once again, those those interviews like we did last week, don't they don't take the place of a consultation. They're nowhere near as much information as we give on a consultation. But at the same time, edge feathering is so fine-tooth comb that it's hard to recommend it when you've it, never seen the property. It is so detail-oriented of terrain, topography, um, species again, access, of trees, species, yeah, exactly. size of trees. 100%. You, you you just can't go to every edge or design a, a, a food plot and then say we're going to edge feather this side. You know, because you, you're gonna, you could easily have we're gonna 20 close, plus We're going to close edge feather yeah. this side. DBH, you know, great white oaks that might drop or, or other species that you're like, oh, I don't, I don't. I don't want to destroy all that. Like you can't, you cannot achieve that in a in an, uh, let let's say a a podcast where you're looking at a map. We all know that, but it's still one of those things that you have to use your discretion because you're on site and just be smart about it. It's common sense, truthfully, of what is what am I going to do with this chainsaw that's going to help improve the habitat and the hunting. Yeah. Each tree you cut, it's a decision, yes or no, keep it or leave it, and you know. Open up that that transition zone, more sunlight, more species. It's going to help the hunting, for sure. So edge feathering, big thing. You know, we once again we're gonna we're gonna try to drive this home. There's a big deer in the area, and it may, for a short period, push him to it. We had pictures of him that night. Oh yeah, down in the bottom. Um, Not terribly far. I mean, truthfully, off the slope, down in the bottom. Problem. Yeah. It's yeah. Not that far. Not very far. Less than a mile. Uh, shoot less than a half a mile away. Yeah. Um, and so, he, you know, 
yeah, we could have bumped him out of the area. You guys could have went in there that afternoon when you first stepped in it and bumped yeah. him out of bed. Who cares? What we're doing is creating better habitat for the long term. And because the habitat is so poor in our area, as well as most oh, of the country, other than... Everyone's raising you, their hand right now. You uh, you guys out in Kansas, Oklahoma, where it's native prairie, and we're all jealous and envious of you. Yeah. Um, most of us have poor habitat. And so basically we're creating a, a vacuum effect where now we have the best habitat in that part of the world, especially on that ri- on that ridge to where it's like, well, we know deer are going to come back and utilize this. Some of the sassafras that were cut, they already have their berries formed on them. Mm-hmm. We're, we're putting food on the ground. A, a lot of those trees have young little uh, leaves for, for and of ends of twigs. It's not, yeah, gonna, it's not just deer. Yeah, there's bears are going to love it. Yeah. Um, uh, by the way, Yogi? I have seen a lot of uh, bears, a lot of sassafras in the last week. Bent over. Limbs broken or mm-hmm. bent over. And, and you may mm-hmm. think, what in the world? Probably bears. Yep. yep. Um, and so, you know, the edge feathering is doing so much for the deer, for the uh, for the turkeys, for the bear. Uh, the rabbits. If, if you're in an area where you have quail or you have grouse, this yep. is great for them as well. No doubt. Um, and so great for the rabbits, like you said. And so, yeah, this is a huge win. And it's, and it's one of those things that this time of year, if you're trying to create an edge and you're trying to create a visual barrier as well as an actual physical barrier – what better time than do it when there's actual leaves on the tree? This is I would mm-hmm. prefer to do edge feathering now rather than in the winter. Now we do a lot of edge feathering in the winter, but if you're dropping these trees, you're creating just a wall of leaves, and if you've hinged the trees, they're going to stay on there. And uh, so now you've got this great barrier uh, that's only going to help your hunting. So but huge win. And that's that's the thing, you know. The next thing we're going to talk about uh, is is basically a bedding thicket that was created over wildlife opening just off the slope of this food plot. And all the, the edge feathering, the open edge feathering, closed edge feathering, the tree stand placement, the access, and then this bedding thicket where we know deer are generally bedding at within this larger drain kind of complex. We're now isolating and creating this better habitat off the edge of the food plot that makes sense the way when a deer stands up out of that bedding thicket, the easiest place for them to walk, they've ar- like they've already made the decision as they're standing up of how they're accessing that food plot, and it is by design, by the edge feathering, by the placement of the bedding thicket, it's designed that it's the easiest path straight up the hill right to basically 20-yard chip shot in front of the tree stand. Those are the types of things that if you are understanding how deer utilize terrain and habitat features on a property no it's not bulletproof they're not going to do it absolutely 100 percent of the time but a large percentage of the time they're going to read scripts and we've seen it happen over the past couple years of deer just absolutely reading the script in a in a time period let's say the rut when things tend to be very chaotic and they're just traveling around like crazy it's just understanding what deer naturally do then and having a property set up in the way that it needs to be set up based on, again, habitat features, topography changes, you're going to get in front of deer. And oh, that's, yeah. that's like, it's almost giddy. Like, it's super hot running chainsaw right now this time of the year. Um, you're sweating like crazy. But it's exciting as you're doing it and you're out there in the field implementing this stuff because you're like, I can totally see this happening. Like, I, I, can, I can see this hunt coming together and I'm drenched in sweat early august but 
Come October, see, late October, crawling. Yeah, it's it's like it's gonna happen. I just I just need the right weather and the right wind to be able to access it, and it totally can happen. Totally, and that's the thing I think about as as this Prairie Hollow property develops. There's not going to be a place on it that's not you're just super confident going to. You know what I mean? Like super confident any time of the year you can go and hunt it and it be you you're in the ball game. Yeah. There's not like the throwaway sets, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like gosh, this could be good. Yeah. This could be really good. And and it's definitely the more we fine tune and and look at the cuz going back, the Prairie Hollow property has been mainly just hunted since Chad and I first started hunting it in 2004, I believe. No, 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 take that back. We first started hunting it right around 2000. Mm-hmm. Uh, it changed ownership in 2004, 2005. Um, and then we started actually, that was just hunting. We started actually managing it two years ago. Yeah, and I mean, so it, it, that started the logging operation, which hasn't done a whole lot. Uh, we've done one, a couple main areas, but for you, the most you, part, what you mean is not 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 that's not done a lot, but it's not all the way completed or close yeah, to completion. We're not it's, even a quarter of the way between. It's impacted what we're gonna a do. lot, but it hasn't. You know, there's still a large per- percentage that needs to get accomplished. Well, and and four or five years ago, we didn't even have one mature deer on on camera at all in that whole 600 acres tell you how bad it was now we've got a deer that's probably pushing 160 uh and another one that pushing 150 and uh, how bad it was from two different aspects habitat one but two terrible hunting pressure and age structure within, within the greater herd yeah it was like non-existent yeah <laughs> and so you know it's come a long ways and the habitat's been poor now there's been logging bunch mm-hmm. of woodland restoration we've shared pictures on our social media about how wonderful it looks and a little side note on that. We did that woodland restoration. We've shared pictures with you guys. We've talked about it. It's about 90 acres uh, or that section. It's probably a 60-acre cut. Big blue stems popping under oh large oaks, and yeah. it's now six foot tall with seeds all over it, seed heads forming. It's like, where were you just I, laying in this? It was just laying in the on the ground going, please, Lord, send a fire oh, through man. here or a tornado so I Give can get some sun sunlight. Give me sunfire, baby. Yeah, and, and it got that, and now it's just gone nuts. And I noticed yesterday, two days ago, driving through a big clump in an area I didn't know there was any uh, blue stem. And it's just like, I, that's only going to spread. I will say this about that little slope. It has more than exceeded expectations in in two years of what it what it has come come to be yeah by I, far and I, this is only year two Indian grass hadn't even started like, growing uh, a whole lot in there yet there's a little bit right off right off the road yeah it's like that's that's just the start just yep. wait yeah first Chad first saw fire. Joe Pye weed growing yep. um yeah it just uh, it's is wild. crazy and so that's a great area but this area we're talking about up until the edge feathering bedding thicket was was put in place, if you were to say from 100 yards from this food plot, the food plot's been the only thing that's changed mm-hmm. other than trees getting a little bigger and a little bit more shade on the ground in the <laughs> yes. last yeah. 30 years, basically. Yeah. Um, and now you guys cut out that north slope. You cut out the south slope probably 200 yards from mm-hmm. there. Um, did the edge feathering. So now it's like, wow, there's woody. There's going to be woody browse available. There's going to be a lot more native herbaceous plants in the timber. 
Um, we yep. burned it. We have burned it in the past, but like we've said so much, burning closed canopy forest really doesn't do a lot. There was nothing really beneficial on the ground, truthfully. Yeah. We knocked some sassafras back, um, which I noticed when we cut had only stump sprouted even yeah. harder. <laughs> well, we cut uh, a lot of little saplings. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, edge feathering. Yep. Do it. Don't be scared. Do it right now. If there's a, if you're scared, hey, man, I never got around to that. Should I do it? Should I not do it? Do it. Who cares? Uh, it's only temporary bumping deer out of the area. Do the improvement, and deer will notice the improvement in the habitat and take, uh, yep. and, and take it to their advantage. Um, so you're adding woody brows to the ground. You're adding cover to the ground. You're bringing more sunlight to the ground. You know, Matt, I was thinking uh, a lot lately. How many times we talk limited resource, limited resource this, limited resource that. There's limited, there's limited cover. There's limited food. There's limited security. Everything's when are, limited. When are we going to just sum it up in one thing and say, for the most part, if you're in timber country, the limited resource, resource is sunlight to the to the ground. I, because just by getting that to the ground, you're going to get change. You will definitely have change. And and here's species composition. If you have very poor underbrush, sometimes you don't know what's going to come back. You don't. There's indicators out there, this and that, across the whole country. But if you go out there and you just open up the sunlight, I mean, open up the canopy, allow sunlight in, you're going to get, you're going to get whether it's good or bad species, you will have more cover, period. You will. Whether whether it's a junky species, like let's say multiple rows or something else. I'm not advocating to go in and cut and open it up if you know you have multiple rows. I'm just saying... Even if you have that bad species, you have more cover. Then you go in, you treat the multiple rows, and you move on. But here's the thing. You're not going to get good cover unless you cut, unless yes. you open up the canopy. You're not. Yeah. What's going to change? Nothing. We're sitting here talking about the Prairie Hall property that has only grown up taller, more thick, closed off the canopy in 30 years. Nothing had been cut. It didn't get any thicker. Got It went the other, uh, the other yep. way. So you have to do something if you want to add cover Add cover and go in and cut. Do it. There's no, there's like there's no excuses of of well I'm, I'm waiting around for all this this and that like go in and cut. You guys we went in and cut in areas that you guys are gonna have a timber harvest on down the road. We didn't cut like really valuable species or anything. I we hope left not. a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> but and 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 the other thing we, is we're you still don't cut it. you don't cut the young stuff that's gonna be valuable in the future yeah. either. Yeah, basically there, there's a there's a vlog that'll come out here in a little bit. We we walked you through exactly what we cut, why we cut it, and why we left this standing. Like, there's no excuses of, of basically not to do it. It's just roll up your sleeves, put some gas, borrow and chainsaw, and run it. So, through all our ramblings, 24 <laughs> minutes of rambling, so far we've covered things to do before season gets here. Edge feathering. Check. Bedding thickets. Check. If you're in an area and guys in crop country and you're saying, well, when are you going to get to the stuff for me? It's coming. For you timber country guys and even you guys in crop country that have woodlots, if you can see or you're going, man, you know, when October hits, I can see 200 yards through there, do something. Edge feather it or uh, edge feather the, the side of the field or the, or the pasture, whatever it is, edge feather it. And then also... Get in there and cut out a bedding thicket. Make it a half acre. Yeah, absolutely. And and the, whole, the other thing with the edge feathering is don't just pick the first tree along the edge. If it's junk timber, 
10, 20 yards into the interior, 30 yards, why are you going to leave that if you got a chainsaw right there in your hand? Yeah, sawtooth it. Cut it. Picture it like a lake, uh, not Okeechobee Lake either. Yeah. Lake of the Ozarks right. or uh, some right. of the other lakes. Uh, Bull Shoals, Table Rock, I'm going to list some local lakes for you. If you look at the coastline, it goes, it's just Very, jagged. It's lobed everywhere. And uh, picture that with edge feathering. That's what we're looking for. Chase those chase those trees that aren't providing a lot of benefit or are overstocked and, and start cutting them out. Someone's also going to say this just real quick. Well, if I put all that great cover adjacent to my food pot, my deer going to bed there. Oh, well, then you have crappy open you've timber through, big, through the rest of your got a bigger through the rest of your timber. You yep. need to go into a bedding thicket off the food plot, put them yep. there, let them work out. Yep. And just by nature of of a white-tailed deer, it's probably not going to spend its life bedded right next to a food plot. No. It's gonna. There's a transition in there that it's gonna have to do. Um, it's got to work off work off those calories somehow, right? <laughs> um, so next thing for you crop field guys, and you're like, what can I do to improve my hunting, but also improve my deer herd? We're not gonna say habitat because this isn't necessarily a habitat improvement. It's more to improve the health of your deer herd Correct. and your hunting and, and soil and soil. And um, that goes what we're talking about is cover cropping. Now we're not. Now we would love it if you took your 200-acre crop field and you cover yeah. cropped it, but we're advocating more on doing one to two-acre cover crops in some of your areas where, let's say, let's say you even just have permission to hunt on a farm and the guy has crop fields. Talk to him about adding cover crops to some of your favorite areas. Maybe there's a back corner of a crop field that you're like, well, that's where the deer come out when they're going in this huge cut crop field. Mm-hmm. Cover crop that acre to where you have food available uh, more food available throughout that hunting season and most importantly through that very stressful period of late winter early spring um, when if it's just if it's just a crop field that gets cut and they're eating spilled grain um, a lot of that's going to be ate up or spoiled by the time late winter early spring gets here so cover cropping is a great way to help supplement some of that uh, some of that uh, food availability for the deer um, as well as protect some soil by preventing erosion but also uh, feeding those the microbial activity in the soil um, which no farmer is going to be like oh no don't you dare no. cover crop that field no. son like no. that is a huge win-win from a hunter getting access into property say hey not only do I want to hunt it, but here's here's what I'm willing to do kind of for you. It's going to help us both out. Here are the benefits. Who else is doing that? And it might just, he may be going, well, what are you planning on planting? Well, just tell him, uh, you know, maybe it's crimson clover, purple top turnips, and winter wheat. Maybe it's just those three. It's a start. It's, it's a start. The 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 hope is you, you learn about cover crops and you learn about diversity. Well, they'll hear it on the other podcast this week about uh, the different blends stuff with Stratton, but all the, the benefits of diversity. But just get out there and, and start it. Try it. Um, they're, they're annuals. You can broadcast these things. You don't need heavy equipment. Just get out there and do it. One of the, I love October, November, and December because we're hunters at heart. But, man, when you travel and you travel across the country, it's disheartening to see so many acres of just bare soil. Bare ground. Gosh, it's like, oh. It, yeah. It's tough to see, but there's no excuse for it if you can go out there as a hunter and improve hunting, improve the quality of deer, improve the health of the soil. It's a win-win-win. Yep, uh, and I'll say something too. If if you're looking, 
if you're in an area where you complain about winter kill and your crop fields are turned up dirt, it, it, stop. And, yeah. W- this is one way to help prevent large, massive winter kills is cover cropping. Another thing is exactly what we said on first point and point, point one and two, woody browse. Yep. Think about the two big stressful times of a deer's life. You've got late winter, early spring, and you've got late summer. What can you do to help a deer during late winter, early spring? Um, what is a what um, if there was no crops? Me. If pick there me. was no if there were no crops, if there were no food plots, we're going pre settlement, what was a lot of a lot of the uh, forage available at that point? Woody browse. Woody, woody browse. And so We we're never gonna change that. We have to embrace that. Like that that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. That's why we always talk about shrubs. That's why we talk about cutting. That's why we talk about flush cutting. Young forest. Young forest regeneration. It's critical not only for deer, but it's critical for uh, rough grouse. Like so many different things. It's a natural part of the landscape that we have forgotten about, and it's critical. And if you want to, coming off the heels of, of an extremely tough winter, how, how many people north of us, let's say northern Indiana, north Illinois, Wisconsin, Iowa, Nebraska, uh, Minnesota, how many people in that massive Arctic blast had deer die in their area? Yes, that was ex- absolutely extreme conditions, but if you didn't have a food source and food was lacking during that period or quality cover was lacking in that time frame when that Arctic blast hit, deer died. Yes. Deer died. And, and what they need, though, during those times is woody browse. They so need to be able to feed. Add woody browse, add cover crops, and you're going to help your deer herd during that late winter, early spring. One, two, three, point one, two, three, would just help you out. I will address what can you do to help your deer herd during that stressful period of the summer months. Add natives. Diversity. Add diversity of natives. Um, but guess what? You're you're going to get that by doing one sunlight. and two. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you'll get that by doing one and two. So I guess I guess there is a reason why to mention it. But also, helping deer during that late summer stress period is is important as well. So that's where natives come in. When your soybean leaves are turning up, you're trying to get. You're like, man, please just rain. You look over at some common ragweed, and it's oh. just green and lush, and you're like, what in the world is Smiling that doing? Back at or you. giant ragweed. <laughs> Gosh, um, they crushed it last year And during, uh, our, during our dry spell. During our dry spell. Crushed and it. so it's like, well. Jewel weed's another one during that, yes. that time frame because it's usually I was bottom looking ground. at that while I was, while I was bush hogging at yeah. the edge brush bottom, and it was what time? About noon when I got there. You could see water droplets all, all over it. Over it. And when you go and you break that stem, it's like it's like when you cut into an orange or a tomato. You're like, oh, I don't want it to squirt in my eye. Yeah. There's so much moisture in that stem. They're going in there and they absolutely hammer it during those times. Um, For sure. Now we, we probably ought to get you brush hogging in in uh, August time frame. We we better get to that because someone's like, what they did what? You yeah. have to. Well, Let's just cut, hold cover on. crops. So we're we'll going to the next one is add diversity. So we've yep. talked about uh, crop fields. Um, if you're a guy that's got food plots and you planted corn and you're like, this is going to be my late season dynamite spot, or yep. I've, I've got standing beans. Um, you, you've you got standing beans, standing corn, or something, and you're, and you're like, Milo even. You're like, this yep. is going to be late season honey hole. Um, and it's a monoculture or, or it's just a lot of grain. You're like... Here, this is this is what I'm hunting. 
if you're like us and you planted soybeans, you're like, this is going to be standing soybeans late winter. We're going to get that cold front during muzzleloader season, and it's going to be game on. And then it stays warm and warm and warm, and it's a very mild winter, early part of the winter. And you're like, they're never going to get to the beans. It's never been cold enough for them to get to the beans. And you're like, dang, I wonder what I could have done. Here's what you could have done. You could have done the same thing we talked about in the crop field. Add diversity by cover cropping those one or two acre, maybe five acre grain fields. Adding diversity to it is not only going to help fight off weeds in the future, especially in the spring when you get those winter annual weeds, but you're also going to make sure that there's a food source there no matter what weather condition, uh, whether it's a mild winter or a very cold winter, you got the benefit of food. So you can definitely, definitely help your deer herd, but also help your soil and help your chances at punching a tag in that food plot by adding diversity. If you've got standing grain, put greens below it. you got to. And, and greens is a general term, but it's including... All the fall annuals we talk about here in the um, the podcast with, with, with the guys at Stratton Seed. Like, listen to that podcast. Listen to the, the, the factors of diversity, what they play, what they do, and you'll understand why you want that in a food plot regime or, or in a native um, mindset across your whole property. Diversity is the only thing that's going to truly get you ahead um, and, and let your property in a general neighborhood stance stand out in the manner that you want it to diversity you're going right. to shine when other people are just not only drowning in their not swaddles. only diversity in natives but diversity in non-natives with the food plot species yeah. so um next one now we're getting back to the to the brush hogging why yes. were we brush hogging <laughs> uh, and it's weed control and clover so we have uh, a clover field we call brushy bottom that we planted the stratton revival blend in it last September, I believe, first week of September. Yep. And then we also frost-seeded again in in March. Um, and it is red clover, white clover, I think it's ladino clover, um, alfalfa, and chicory. So four species that we then planted oats, no, not oats, triticale, and wheat, wheat. in it. Um the wheat did really good, so we basically had five species in it, species in that food plot through the fall, winter, and spring, and now we're here are in summer. So, for I want you guys to all picture how much maintenance you've done on your food plot areas in the last year. So, if you planted your food plots last fall, how many times have you mowed them or sprayed clethodim, a, a grass-specific herbicide, or gone and got 2,4-DB or Raptor, or any of these herbicides to try and control the weeds in your clover plots? How many times have you done that? Um, and then try to account for your time and money you spent on that. Don't um, make yourself sick thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, and so... We're using, I'm, and I even think there's a study where they found it lower to forage or something. It wasn't like successful mowing. But mowing. Correct, correct. But that's true. I've done mowing for on clovers for years and years and years, and I feel like it is the best way to control uh, weeds. Now, if you have a lot of weeds, there's that's a whole other problem. But if you're just general maintenance for me. And my example is we had foxtail millet that was a problem. We had cerise lespedeza just kind of scattered. I pulled a lot of the sprigs. And then there was a, there was a couple other species that I don't even remember what they were, but they were trying to come up. Um, 
and they hadn't made seed yet. They were, they were working on it, but it wasn't probably wasn't mature yet. So we mowed, and I clipped it. Um, and it was basically, you know, that, that plant has devoted all its energy into making those seeds, and I clipped it before it was mature, so it's not going to have time to grow back. Um, and, and, and produce and a viable seed this year. So you, you got rid of, for the most part, a a potential expanding problem yep. just by mowing. So it's a it's a way to avoid herbicides if you're into that. But yeah. that's the, the thing is, like, identify what the trouble is. Everyone, like, the, the it's not the most simple answer, but everyone wants just to flat out kill stuff. Yeah. It's like, what is the species? What is the problem? You don't, don't go mow it early. Wait for it to get to that stage where it starts to develop and put its energy into the seed head and then come back and mow it later into the seed, and so even if it does grow back some, it's not going to have time to produce a seed head. And a lot of these are annuals, and um, basically they don't, we're going from a seed to trying to germinate, put roots in, and grow, while we have established perennials of clover alfalfa um, that are going to outcompete it, because they're just going to, as soon as, as soon as the first little rain or heavy dews, we get a couple mornings, which I'm sure we got it, it's already going to blow back, and it's going to be This morning, I bet it was cool in that little bottom, and it's just sitting perfect. Yeah, so much humidity. Something degrees when I woke up this morning. When we got out there, when we hung that set not too far from there, do you remember walking into that going, oh my gosh, it feels like a stinking greenhouse. It's so humid and hot. Because there's so much moisture in that clover and alfalfa, and then you have the heat. It's just trying to. Uh, it was just like a sauna, mm-hmm. um, and that's. We know there's a lot of moisture below that clover and alfalfa and chicory. So well, we've gone out there middle of the day, this summer, and just kind of dug around and kind of like you know looking at the, um, the thickness of the clover and everything, and there's there's so much moisture at the ground level just right there. Yeah, and it, it's it's incredible. So. We control in clover. We bush hogged. Um, so when we planted last September, we didn't touch it all the way till this past Friday, two days ago. We came back in and clipped it. Now, what we'll probably probably do is look for the next good rain, and we'll run down and broadcast wheat or trid kale or even one of these fall mixes from Stratton Bounty Hunter or Cattleman's Treasure. We'll broadcast Something that. heavy on the grain. Yep, we'll broadcast that before the rain and broadcast it at a high C rate and we'll have success. And, and that is our way to control weeds and clovers by adding other species that aren't legumes to the mix. So you've Correct. got alfalfa, you've got red clover, and you've got ladino clover, all three leg- legumes that fixate nitrogen as they're growing. Now that over the years, anybody who's ever planted clover, First year, my gosh, it was dog hair thick of clover. Next year, still great. Next year, maybe still great, a few weeds. Next year, a little more weeds. Next year, even more weeds. And you're like, why? It's just I can't get that long term. It's because you've planted legumes, nothing but legumes. And nature over time is going to equalize itself. It's going to fix the problem. It's going to add diversity. And so you're basically by adding these other cereal grains or broadleaves to the mix, you're helping you're the one recreate what grows nature's there. natural process, and you're getting to pick what grows there rather than nature choosing what grows there. So this is a great way to help combat weeds in your perennial clover plots. So mowing and then also following that up, broadcasting at a heavy rate. If it's wheat, you're pro- b- trying to broadcast at 100 pounds per acre, um, and you're doing that right before rain. Now, 
piggybacking off that, we have what other things you can do this time of year to help make sure you have successful hunts and successful herds in the in the future and also limit time is another thing that's what this one planning long-term plots if you're in an area how many times do we get this question i've got this smaller area it may be quarter or half acre but it's got some trees around it so it's kind of shaded what's the best thing i can plant well it's probably not going to be soybeans probably not going to be corn because you you said one of the key phrases partially shaded um, and it's it's a smaller area, so we already know it's more shaded than what you're leading on because it's only a small area. Yeah, and, and if it's got trees problem. around it, it's got a lot of shade. No, no, no. It probably has trees scattered throughout it still. Probably, <laughs> yes. And so got um, planting a shade-tolerant species like perennial clovers and chicory is a, is a great thing you can do. So... Um, like we said, if you're establishing, if you have one of these areas that's a new food plot or it's a spot that you've struggled to get stuff to grow, soil test first. See what you, hopefully you're working to get the soil uh, correct. But at the same time, you plant a species like the Stratton Revival. It's got uh, red clover, white clover, chicory, um, and then also adding in those nurse crops, those oats or wheat. Um, to try and help that along, but also get established and protect those really young, um, really young clovers and broadleaves because they're per- they're perennial, so they're going to work on their roots a little bit longer than than your annuals, like your uh, like your wheat would. So the wheat's going to jump, and it's going to take a little bit longer for those perennials to get their roots and then jump. So that's what you do. Then next spring. Um, if you've got it, if it's a little bit weaker in areas, you can add buckwheat or in the, in the February, March frost seed, but plant long-term perennial plots in areas that are more shade tolerant, or if you're trying to limit the amount of work and maintenance you have to do throughout the year. Yeah. If you're, if you're guys sitting back and like, listen guys, I've been focusing on food plots for years and years and years and years on my property. And I want to. Do what you guys are talking about. Focus on the native habitat. Do work in my timber, old field management, um, native plantings, this and that. Start to convert some of your f- existing food plot acres into perennial stands, and therefore you reduce the maintenance time you have to work on those and can then focus on the things you want to focus on. Um, there's a balance in all of it, but just reorganizing your time and your resources is going to go a long ways in basically getting you close to your goals on your property, diversifying it. That's right. What we got next? Next one is mowing lanes. Did this just two days ago. That was another reason for the for the brush hog. Yep. You know, one of the few reasons. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, there's, there's places that have, you know, overgrown um, pastures or, or old, old fields field. yeah. or prairies. What can you do to help? steer deer more um and this is where we mowing lanes it could be putting in shooting lanes for rifle for rifle hunting if you've got really really thick switchgrass think of all the people that have oh lordy fallen victim to switchgrass monocultures and uh and they realize just how thick it is and once it gets mature where deer really don't like walking through that thick rank grass well mowing lanes is a great way um and so if you've got they're, they're going to take the path of least resistance just like a lot of us would. And so if you have these thick areas and you're trying to, man, how can I get them to come by the stand? Hook up the bush auger. Um, 
shoot, even just drive a four-wheeler multiple times across an area and knock that grass down where it's it's a little bit easier to walk through, they're going to choose that. And uh, that's one thing we like to do. We, we cut out a, a, a different little trail walking path to and from stands um, that we hadn't really used in, in probably, probably been years. But it's just thinking about the access and those those trails can benefit the deer and move them closer to a stand or out in the open more, whatever it may be. But understand your access and utilizing that mode trail for you too, your purpose of in and out of the property goes a long ways. Um, you get in quicker, you get in quieter, and so don't don't forget about that this time of the year. We talk a ton of, of managing the land with simple things like that. What, you spent, who, who knows how long or how many linear feet you you mowed across the place um, for that reason the other day, but it's like half a day. I spent track, more time mowing trails than I did mowing lanes for for deer to walk down. Yeah, I mean it, it's a it's a hour two hour thing is a, is all that it takes across a decent sized property to to knock out and and help you. Yes, fall. and also I did, you know, I'm going to skip one and we'll circle back to it because it goes more with something we talked about earlier, but access mm-hmm. is a huge, huge thing that you should be working on year-round and thinking about year-round. Um, you, I will say this. You won't improve as a hunter on a property if you do not consider and constantly evaluate, reevaluate your access to a property. Yeah, for great, sure. Great story from the other night. It was, what, 8 o'clock when we were trying to connect some dots on some deer movement. And this place that we found is on an access route, the main one into the property. How many times have we driven past that and just never really looked at it and understood that that could be a place to kill one of the biggest deer on the property right now? For sure. Absolutely. It's one of those things that... Um, it's probably always evolving. It's always changing, and you should be always. If if you're doing habitat improvements every single year, you're going to shift travel patterns. You're going to shift the way deer maneuver through a property. For sure. So you're always tweaking. Um, but access is one of those things that how many times, if you're a Land and Legacy client, if, you, if you've hired us for our consultation, consultation services, plug your ears or stop listening for a second. Um, how many times do we ask this question to there somebody all of our listeners. <laughs> or, or friends and we say, boy, this does look like a good spot. How do you get here? And they say, oh, Lordy. Well, well that's the thing. <laughs> that's when we go, okay, we got a problem. Bing, ding, 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 light bulb. We have a problem. We need to fix that. Um, and fixing that problem is not, hey, well, I just have my buddy drive me in or my son drive me in here and then he comes and picks me up. That's a Band-Aid on a wound. Uh, that's a big wound. It's only temporary, and it's really not the best option. We need to figure out, and it could be solved. If that's the case, it could be solved by improving bedding or making actual bedding. Uh, concentrating deer. Concentrating the bedding area or making a significant bedding area. It may be making a food plot better, a, a, food, a feeding area better. Making um, a better funnel in an area. Maybe it's making a better funnel. There's all kinds of ways to solve that problem. We don't know what it's going to be until we get there. Um, but I'll but tell you this. We're that gonna, is, we're gonna that is a problem <laughs> when it, when somebody says, I don't know. Uh, it's just, it's like 
when they say that, I automatically picture it's 30 minutes before daylight and they're walking in and deer are scattering everywhere. At some point, that's happened. So we got to fix that problem. Real, real quick, we need to do a podcast of of the things that, like every property that we go to, the landowner will say at some point. <laughs> That one's a little bit dangerous, but they're gonna. But a little side note, they're gonna point out those persimmon trees. Yes, yes, um, they will. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, and we love all our clients, and it's fun, oh, and, and, no, and it's we're there to help them, hundred percent. And and it's kind of that all shucks when you ask them because it's like they've listened they to the it. podcast, they know <laughs> they we're know gonna what's coming. we're gonna pounce on that one. Yeah. Um, and I know it, some it, some of them are chuckling right or, now. Or the. It might as well go hand in hand if you ask, okay, where did the deer come from when you're in this one? Well, they pretty much come kind from everywhere. from every direction. I feel like Jeff Foxworthy, he's got a joke where he goes through the whole thing and he says, that's the sign. Mm-hmm. That's where it is on that one. Well, that's a sign. It's yeah. in the wrong place. Yeah. It may be a great spot, but it's not the best spot because you're spooking deer even At though they may not point. be blowing or they may no. you may not see them run. You're still alerting deer. Um, so we're going to get around that. Um, and so access is crucial. If you find a great spot, it better have great access. It's not a great spot until it has great access. And you yes. might need to create that access. But until then, it's a potential great spot. And, and I mean, just things to consider. If it is a great spot, probably the most important thing is the tree's going to suck. Because <laughs> yeah. they never go hand in hand. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're always in the, the best spots at the worst trees. I could make that work. I'd prefer not to, but yeah. that's my only option. Or it's covered in poison ivy. Yeah. Um, then I'll, I go hang it. Yeah, and so, uh, <laughs> and then I'll write the whole time that it's that it's set up for a righty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, Luckily, I don't get poison ivy. <laughs> um, and so that's pretty much, uh, you know, access. So that could be right now, instead of cutting across the field, that's the path that's the least resistance. It's easy. It's nice. It's the shortest distance. Maybe it means you got to get in that ditch and walk that ditch up to the stand. We're so good, go we're in good there with chainsaw. Walkers. Go in with chainsaw or creek um, or whatever it is. Find the best path, whether it's a zigzag or it's got a big bend in the in instead of a straight line. Maybe it's a bended a bended uh, path. Find the best access to where you're going to alert the least amount of deer and hopefully no deer and make that path to where it's easy to walk. So if it is a ditch, cut some trees out of it. If it is a ditch, cut the brush out of it. How how many stands do we or have we walked that are in the creek bed? A lot. That's my favorite approach. Or I I mean... Uh, Or if you're in terrain country, going up a little ravine ravine that's going up Right up the gut. Right up it. And it may be... It may be a uh, a thirty yard walk. I'm thinking the newsstand, or a forty yard walk that's steep as a horse's face. Yep. Rather than walking an extra twenty yards up the creek to then walk to the top of the cut or top of the yep. little ravine and walking down, and there's a greater chance of spooking deer. So we're going to go straight up that steep. Let's say this: I would much rather sweat my way into a stand. That has incredible access, knowing I'm not going to spook any deer, and I'm going to hunt it on the right winds. Where if I do sweat a little bit, I'm not too worried about it. Then going the long way around and bumping deer, going to that stand. Absolutely. So access. Uh, if you're going through uh, a field, maybe you mow a trail, so mm-hmm. you're not wading through grass and leaving scent everywhere. Um, if it's through the timber, 
um, and you're going up a ravine, cut out the, move the rocks around. Uh, I think of a couple this spring turkey hunting. I can think of a time where I stepped on a big rock and it's like, and it made a lot of noise. Remove those, move them over to where they don't make noise. Walk that out. You should have been walking this out a month ago, but if it's never too late, make sure that access is set up correctly. I, I don't, anything else to well, add on I, access? Again, I, I honestly, there's there's tons of places you can you can kill deer on a well managed or set up farm. Truthfully, if it's if it's done right and the resources are in the right places, you can kill them hopefully in two or three places. And so I don't get caught up necessarily on on uh, let's say the um, the tree it's at because. I know there's somewhere else that I should be able to kill this deer too. I'm more focused on access that I want this deer to continue to do what he's been doing and will do. And so I don't want to screw it up by bumping him. I'm yeah. just going to, I'm going to wait to the right day, wait for the right conditions, wait for the right access and go in and kill it. It's, 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 I think, I think what it is, it's a combination of a great location, impeccable um, access, and then just be, being patient enough to know when not to hunt it and when to hunt it. It's the balance of those three things that I think makes a great stand. And a lot of it, again, it's not just a location. It's it's all those things put together. If you're a public land hunter, whoa, the, the guys that talk land habitat are talking public land, you betcha. I'll bet you access is the biggest way. I It was for me. Access was always the way to be most successful. Um, everybody, you, you're competing with other hunters. They're walking in the path of least resistance, the easiest way. And yet that may be the way that walks right by the deer's, uh, the, the deer, uh, is bedding area or the area that they're feeding. Um, access, access, access. How many times can we preach access, diversity and natives? It, it, uh, hunting strategy, there's not a better thing to preach than access. And, and truthfully, the one that we found that other stand location the other night, is awesome amazing it, it's, access. It's, a, it's a it's perfect it's, it's going to set access. up great for a rifle hunter no um, it's okay or or black powder when they're going down to the bottom yep crossing i mean it's going to be it's going to be awesome all right what's next last thing going back to food plots i wanted to talk about red clover that was a big thing in your perennial food plots um Red clovers well, kind of gets dogged some I was gonna uh, say. It, because it's stemmy is what people will say. And it and it's one of those things that's like, well, it's real stemmy. It doesn't put off as much tonnage. I don't know <laughs> where that comes from. Um, when you look at Ladino clover, it's real short, puts off its mainly leaves. It's, main, uh, it's not as stemmy. When you look at red clover, it's stemmy. It's twice as tall, but there's leaves in multiple places. Yeah, so all across probably, the stem. Yeah. Uh, it, it produces great tonnage, but here's the reason why I wanted to mention it and why it's on the bottom because it was a final thought I had uh, before we wrap this up and I was working on the notes. You look at Ladino Clover, and we talked about this pre-show. Uh, it peaks at the same time a lot of cool seasons peak, right around turkey season. It peaks in that uh, April, May, and, and it's, still, it's still producing in, in June um, and can in July if you're getting rain. But thing about white clover is it peaks at a different time as red clover. So if you combine the two, you're going to have two peaks of production at different times of the growing season. So one will peak in May, one will peak in probably June, July, 
Red Clover's right now is peaking. I mean, it is tall, it's tons of forage. Uh, pollinators are using it like crazy. But if you look at it, it's like, man, this thing's going nuts while Ladino's kind of tapering off. And so if you're like, I, I love my white clover, look at adding red clover because it's going to peak at a different time. And probably you're going to carry that peak performance throughout the whole summer rather than just early summer and then just hope like crazy you get rain and you get moisture during later on in the summer so your white clover stays uh, active and stays growing and doesn't go dormant. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the same thing really that can be said with the alfalfa is it handles the middle of the summer way far better far far better than your white clover so if you want to have a truly perennial feeding plot that has benefits throughout the almost every single month of the year depending on your climate and your location you've got to have the diversity and hitting those peaks of late may june into july red clover kills it and then alfalfa is going from late april all the way through the summer and into the fall um you just have to have the balance. You have to have those uh, those other species to balance it out. And red clover, like you said, one that has been forgotten in the the wildlife world, um, but truthfully, it it is a is a great forage and hits another window that we need to be conscious of. That's you know, when antlers are we growing. We must be the most honest guys out there. You know why? Because you're always why. truthfully, and I'm always to be honest. <laughs> truthfully, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, man, just crack me up because I know people have commented on some of our phrases we use over and over. Yeah. Now, we've shifted out of dive in yeah, and, uh, that and can of worms, and now we're into, I'll be honest with you, and truthfully. truthfully. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what the next ones are going to bring. I, I don't I'm know. Scared. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, what can you do this time of year preparing for deer seasons right around the corner? You can still edge feather, and I would encourage you to do so. You can still create bedding thickets. You can prepare for cover cropping in those crop fields. You can prepare for cover cropping or adding diversity to your standing uh, grain fields. So if you have standing soybeans, you have standing corn, add some cover crops or some greens, some brassicas, some cl annual clover, some wheat, some cereal uh, rye. Add those to it so you have something on the on the food plot for warmer warmer weather or colder weather. Um, you have weed control and clover, so cut the if you've got some clovers uh, uh clover plots and you have some weeds in them and you, they're almost going to seed go ahead and clip them make sure that those weeds don't go to seed then throw down some uh cereal grains to try to help add diversity and take care of some of that nitrogen that that clover and those other legumes have fixated all growing season um, you also have um planting if you're looking at your food plot program add if you've if your soybean soybean soybeans or your soybeans and cowpeas and lab lab and all these other things add some perennial clover some perennial mixes with alfalfa chicory and, and different clovers to the mix um mowing lanes so you've got mowing mowing lanes out through your grassy uh overgrown fields your, your crp field. fields yeah. yeah mow some lanes to where you have and that's just one pass with a five foot mower or whatever um just, just a simple. little bitty Don't simple thing it. Don't don't make a thirty foot band. Don't over don't overdo it. Keep it small. Keep it simple. Stupid, um, right? That's uh, the phrase. Well, um, add red clover and then also nail down access. So make sure your access trails are cleared out and you have those trails cleared out. So all those do them. 
you won't regret it, not this season, not next season, not five years from now, especially if you're doing edge feathering, bedding thickets, and adding diversity. I would say don't stink and complicate stuff. Stop overthinking it and get out there and do it. There's Yes, things are dynamic, but you're not going to see change unless you change and you change the landscape in a That's positive right. way. Um, everyone's smart. Just use common sense and get out there and, and make the differences that you want to see. You have to take action to do that. Um, and then, two, shoot your bow. <laughs> shoot your bow, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's another big one for, for preparation. I'm saying that to remind myself because I haven't done it yet. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Me either. <laughs> that needs to happen. <laughs> uh, we're wrapping it up now. One thing um, that's uh, totally off topic, but it's a it's a reminder for you guys, and Matt will know where this is coming from based on our church service this morning. But this fall, it's not about killing the biggest deer in the neighborhood, mm. but it's important, and most importantly, to be a good dad, be a good husband. So, guys, don't forget to focus on priorities. That's 100%. the most important thing uh, that we can tell you. Um, and that you can uh, this, that's rem- the take remember, takeaway is if if there comes a time this fall where you're like, should I should I hunt, should I not? If there comes a time to be a good dad uh, or you can take your kid, do it. You won't regret it. And uh, just don't forget to focus on Habitat's great, but it's more important to be a good dad, be a good husband, be a good person. That's exactly right. All right, guys, we'll see you next week. Thank you.